tonight we're going to continue in our discussion um, through the um, uh, five points of Calvinism, this rather weird historical discussion that we started last week. Um, and for those of you that missed it, I simply wanted to introduce you to uh, a- an historical discussion uh, that took place about 300 years ago that looks to most people's eyes like a big waste of time. Uh, but I tried to appeal to you last week that nothing could be more vital to what we think of in our Christianity than this discussion. And um, what I didn't mention last week was the way in which this discussion sort of frames itself. Because I mentioned that there was a guy named Jacob Arminius, and it is Arminius, not Arminius, uh, who began to teach certain things that he disagreed with coming up out of the Reformation, especially some of the teachings that came from a guy by the name of John Calvin, uh, who was sort of wildly popular during the Reformation time. But during that particular time, the, uh, the people, the students of Arminius, basically said there are five things that we don't like about this whole Calvinism thing. And they asserted five ideas that they thought people should be very careful to understand. Okay, I did not mention them last week, but I'll mention them this week by way of introduction. The first thing that Arminius said was, mankind is, has not been so affected by sin that he's not able to still make good choices. Did you, make, did you catch that? Sin has not quite messed up mankind to where he's unable to make good choices. Oh, he can make the right choices if given the right circumstance. The second thing that they said is that God basically, uh, whenever the Bible mentions this idea of election or this idea of predestination, like Harry brought up for us last week, it was Harry that brought it up, not me, um, whenever the Bible mentions that, it's simply referring to this activity that God engages in when he sees someone believing in him. Does that make sense? God elects you when he sees you from the beginning of time believing in him. That's what election is. That's the second point of Arminius. The third point was this idea that Jesus died for everybody. When Jesus died on the cross, it was for everyone. But Jesus' death doesn't become something meaningful to you until you believe in him. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus' death uh, made it possible for you to be a Christian if you choose for him. That was the third point. The fourth point basically was talking about the Holy Spirit, where there was this discussion about what did the Holy Spirit do in terms of salvation. And Arminius said, all the Holy Spirit does is set you up. He starts to talk to you. He starts to woo you. starts to move you. But you always have the right to tell him no. That was the fourth point. The fifth point had to do with your security as a believer. Because Arminius was being very uh, consistent, I would say. He would say, if you got to be a Christian by your choice, you can, if you will, unchristian yourself by your choice. Does that make sense? In other words, you could lose your salvation having once gained it. So that, these were the five teachings that Arminius said these are absolutely vitally important. Now... I want you to know, first of all, before we dive into this, it is okay for you to sit there and be thinking to yourself, yeah, (laughs) yeah, those were exactly right. Those are exactly the things that I believe. That's what I've always embraced. That's okay. Those five teachings, though, at least for the Dutch Reformed Church about 350, 400 some odd years ago, 
came together, were so controversial that they came together to a great big meeting, a great big church council, to decide whether or not the Bible really taught those five things. By the end of the council, which went on for like seven or eight months, they issued uh, the statement that they thought that those five things were not according to what the Scripture taught. And in response to those five things, they established the five points of Calvinism. Does that make sense? So the five points that we're going to go through this uh, summer are a response to the five things that Arminius taught. Does that make sense? That's a historical discussion. Now, what's good and what's bad about that? Well, what's bad about it is, is there's a lot of people that think that the only thing that John Calvin had to say were his five points in response to the points of Arminius. (laughs) Actually, Calvin said a whole lot of things. In many ways, to look at all of Calvinism as just these five points is a little bit out of balance. Uh, He said all kinds of stuff on Christian living, on the nature of Scripture. He talked about the Trinity, talked about a lot about personal holiness and salvation, lots of stuff that Calvin did. So it's, it's not really everything that the man talked about. Second thing, it's also, you'll notice, the five points of Calvinism kind of come across in something of a negative way. As I go through them here in just a second, they sound a little bit kind of, There's no way to describe it. When you read them, they're just kind of like, oh, they feel a little bit heavy when you first read them for the first time. And the reason is, is because they're a response to something that they were disagreeing with. Have you ever noticed how ugly you sound whenever you're having an argument with somebody and you're trying to prove your point and it just kind of comes out like you're ticked off? That's kind of the way the five points of Calvinism can tend to sound. And that's not really fair to the brighter teaching of the Reformation about salvation. Which brings me to the last point. So there are some negative things about it, but in the positive sense, the five points of Calvinism are a great way of helping us establish this point. And this is my question. This is sort of my opening question for you tonight. And I've been working all week on how to frame this. Literally, as we were driving through Kentucky countrysides, I was thinking about this question. And I I framed it this way. You may think this is terrible, but that's okay. From what vantage point do you view your life tonight? Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If if I went to any of you and began to ask you questions about how you are doing in life, that's the Andy Griffith tune. Is that what that is? Emily, that is so cheerful, and I'm leaving that in the podcast so that everyone knows that Emily Powell's uh, uh, phone went off. But it was the Andy Griffith show. That's so precious. I love that. (laughs) Emily, you're a senior now. You've been around me long enough to know that I was going to bring that out. That's so awesome. Um, Okay, if I went around the room tonight and I asked you, how are you doing? You ever thought about what an interesting question? How are you doing? Now, for most of us, we think that that's just a, uh, what do you call it when you're just being nice? Um, Yeah, polite. It's a polite way of saying, I'm doing great, fine, thanks. We just say something. But what if I really looked and said, no, I really want to know. Tell me, like right now, where you find yourself in the summer of 2011, how are you doing? Now, I don't know what kind of answers that you would give to that. Some of you may say, I have never been more confident and excited about my future less than I've ever been right now. You might look and say, this is some of the hardest times I've ever been through in my entire life. I'll bet you of the, what, 
30, 40 some odd people that are here tonight, we would get 30 or 40 different answers to that question, how are you doing? But what I simply want to make you notice is this. When you answer that question, you are answering it from a certain place, from a certain set of assumptions about your life, from a certain perspective on what is the good life and what is the bad life, that in many ways frame the very expectations that you have about whether you're doing well or whether you're being po- doing poorly. That's my question. From what vantage point do you look over the horizon of your own life and determine whether you're doing well or whether you're doing poorly? Because of all the great things about the five points of Calvinism, they establish for you a radically (laughs) surprising, unusual, um, earth-shattering, and world-changing vantage point that, to be honest with you, once established, you can hardly look at anything else in your life in the same way after. Is that overblown enough? (laughs) How about that? Preachers are given to overgeneralization, so I thought I'd just be a little over the top. The five points of Calvinism frame themselves very nicely, okay? The first point and the fifth point are about you. They're about man. They're about what your condition is. The second point is about God the Father and His role in your salvation, The third point is about God the Son and His role in your salvation. And the fourth point is, you guessed it, about the Holy Spirit's role in your salvation. Does that make sense? So it's really a trinity. It's a discussion about what the Trinity does in your salvation that is bookended by how that affects you. Does that make sense? So that's how we're going to go through these. And so here they are. Finally, it took me a lesson and a half to get to <laughs> the five points of Calvinism. Here they are. And the funny thing is, is they all start with letters that if you put an acronym together, spell the word TULIP, like the flower. Okay? T stands for total depravity. We're going to talk about that tonight. Total depravity. Mankind is completely depraved in his sin. Number two, unconditional election. That when God works in the hearts of men, he does so without reference to the condition of their hearts. Talk about that more next week. Number three is limited atonement. That Jesus' death was actually specifically intended for his people. Number four, irresistible grace. That when the Holy Spirit draws, he does so with great effect, not in a generic way. And then finally, the fifth point is what we call the perseverance of the saints, that once God has established your salvation, guess what? Even you can't mess it up. Did you catch that? Now, listen to me, listen to me, before you have a brain hemorrhage right here and freak out about some of the things that we just said, withhold judgment (laughs) until we walk through these. I simply want to set before you Is there any biblical warrant for looking at these things in the way in which we have? And is there not something that we can learn from them? Okay? 
That was, that was my uh, half of the lesson introduction there uh, uh, for the sake of our discussion here. All right, tonight is really fun because what I want to do is I want to sort of do a smattering of Scripture passages that I want to give out to you all. So if, if you brought a Bible by chance, if you'd be willing to look up a Scripture passage and read it for us when we get to it, uh, that would be incredibly uh, helpful. Um, so, so can I just start throwing out verses and somebody say, I got it, I got it. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. Thank you. Uh, Genesis eight twenty two. Got it. Got it. Uh, Ecclesiastes nine three. Anyone? Got it. All right. Good. Uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine. Emily. Uh, Mark seven twenty one through twenty three. Mark seven twenty one through twenty three. Meredith, thank you. John three nineteen. John three nineteen. Um, yes. Romans eight seven and eight. Anyone? Anyone? Great. Uh, lots of these. 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Here we go, Lena. Um, Ephesians 4.17-19. through 19. Marian? Um, and let's do, finally, Titus 1.15. What? Cole. Have you been raising your hand and wanted to... I appreciate your enthusiasm, Cole. That's what we want, is enthusiasm. Okay, let, let, me, let, let me begin. Before we look at those scripture passages with a little story, I was having a conversation a number of years ago with a guy from a different theological tradition than my own. Uh, we were at the campus of the University of Memphis and talking about theological discussions. And this was a person who was in a state of panic because he was wrestling through the question of whether or not he had lost his salvation. It's very interesting. This young man was convinced that he had been engaged in a certain experience in the, in the months prior to our conversation that had ejected him from being able to be saved ever again. He was done. He was finished with his salvation. And I was interested in this, and I was glad to be able to have a conversation with him because he was a guy who, and you can understand that, once he had been convinced that there was instability in his relationship to God, every other part of his life got unstable with it. You can understand that, can't you? Uh, you know, the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? You ever taken the opposite of that? If God is against you, <laughs> uh, what do you have going for you? And this man was really, this young man was really gripped by this question. How can I know... And I mean, no, if God and I are really on the same page. Now, we had a relatively decent discussion, I think, at that moment. But one of the things I tried to point out to him was this simple thought. And, and, and I'll throw this out there. If you think that you have lost your salvation before God on the basis of some demerit that you have earned in your own life, does that not suggest that you have your salvation because of some merit in your life. Did you follow that? Did that go past you? Let me say it again. If you think that you've lost your salvation, that you and God are on the outs because you did something wrong, does that not suggest that the reason why you and God were in good beforehand is because you did something right? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of my children's favorite movie when they were little kids, The Sound of Music, right? For some reason, my wife loves the sound of music. She's sort of playing it for my daughters. My daughters literally grew up being able to sing the entire score of the sound of music uh, uh, at any given moment. It just, it, it, 
When you're a little child, you watch it over and over again. Does anybody, though, remember the song that, uh, the, um, uh, that Baron Von Trapp uh, sings uh, to um, Maria when they finally fall in love and agree to each other's love? Remember when he looks and says, but somewhere in my youth or childhood, I what? I must have done something. Everybody singing. Let's all sing together. I'm kidding. Don't don't start singing. I must have done something good. Catch that? In other words, it's this very sweet thing to look in the eyes of Maria and be like, oh, finally she's here. I have the love of my life. Somewhere in the past, I must have done something good. Isn't that the way we think? It's natural for us to look and say that I have what I have before God on the basis of some merit in me. Look, y'all, if that is your belief, I want you to suggest to you that boatloads of Scripture is against you when you, talk, when you think that way. And I say that with the greatest respect for you, not to insult you or not to make your life difficult, but simply to get you to suggest that the Bible has a very unflattering view of human nature. And far from being an entrance to a death for you that would make you panicked, it may very well be the the thing that brings you into a world of grace. So hold that thought. All right, but let's take a look at this. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here. Uh, Marcellus Kick, old Reformed theologian of the early 21st, 20th century, the view that one takes concerning salvation is going to be determined to a large extent by the view one takes concerning sin and its effect on human nature. Did you hear that? How you view human salvation is going to be determined on what you think of the nature of sin. That is huge, and I totally agree with him. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, The moral inability of fallen man is the core concept of the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption. If one embraces this aspect of the tea in tulip, the rest of the acrostic follows by resistless logic. In other words, R.C. is saying that if you get the T in tulip, the rest of them have to fall. I know some of you may disagree with that as well. That's okay. Um, Look, here's what I simply want to pitch to you. The Bible says that you are most fundamentally, and if anybody have ever been involved in a small group that I do, you've heard me talk about this over and over and over again. The Bible describes you in the most fundamental senses of being a heart. Now, in our day, when we say the word heart, we typically think of our emotions. Y'all, that really hurt my feelings. It hurt my heart. She shouldn't have said that. We think that it's mostly our emotions. The Bible says, though, your heart is more than just your emotions. It is your emotions. The heart is also your thinking. The heart is your choosing. The heart is your conscience. In other words, who you are is what you are in your heart. And your heart, therefore, is this place from which you lock onto things or stuff and say to those things, this is what makes my life count. Your heart are your commitments. It's your joys. It's your delights. It's the things that you find altogether lovely. That's what your heart is. That's why you get to places like Proverbs 23, 7, where the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Whatever's going on in your heart is who you are. No matter what criteria you use to judge that, that's how the Bible looks at you. What does God say to Samuel when he's looking for the next king of Israel? Samuel loves all of David's brothers, but all of a sudden he gets to David and God says, that's my man. And and Samuel's like, 
Really? Him? And what does God say to Samuel saying, you know, you judge by the outward appearance, but what? What does God look on? The heart. The heart. Yeah, but fill in the blanks here. This is, this is interactive on, in the summers. Thank you. Exactly. With enthusiasm. Um, this is why Proverbs 4.23 says that above all else, guard your heart. Listen, listen, listen. For it is the wellspring of life. Look, y'all, if you will unlock this, you will be fast on your way to understanding why you do the stuff you do. Because there's something going on in your heart. All right, so let's take a quick survey of what the Bible says of your heart. Warning, it's not flattering. Okay? All right, Genesis 6-5. Read that one out nice and loud. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> okay, did you catch that? Yeah, this is before the flood. God's going to wipe everything before the flood. Every inclination, that means every movement of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The NIV says only evil all the time. <laughs> uh, now look, I know what you're saying. saying, yeah, that's before the flood when people were bad. After the flood, everybody was much better. Nope. Somebody read Genesis 8.22. Do you want 822 or 8.21? Oh, uh, whatever the imagination of thoughts of man's heart. The part that says every inclination from. Yep, that's it. That's it. Read that one. Thank you, Jessica. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Ooh, from childhood. That's insulting. What about those precious little innocent children, Lass? Careful. I'm going to insult people. I'm not trying to do that. Okay, Ecclesiastes 9 3. Keep going. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they go to the dead. The hearts of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. Hey, come on now. Be honest. I think college is one of the first times where you start to look on the inside and you don't always like what you see there. Madness inside of our hearts. I don't know if it... You, you may have a little more college to get by until you... you there's going to be some time in college where you look back and say, I don't think I'm crazy, but I think I can see it from here. I'm telling you, madness inside of our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9. Uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Desperately wicked, um, deceitful, desperately corrupt, deceitful above all things. That is what your heart does. Your heart deceives. Guess who it deceives the most? You, which is really creepy if you think about it. Like if Marion is deceiving me right now, that's one thing. The way to break that deception is she lied to me about how to balance a chemical equation, right? <laughs> The way to break that deception is for somebody to tell me the truth. She breaks it. But what happens when the, what happens when the deception comes from inside of you? That creeps me out every time I think about it. Because it means that the way in which I'm viewing the world may not be the way in which the world really is. Interesting. Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Ooh. 
All these evils, that wasn't very flattering, come from inside and they make a man unclean. Jesus was having this conversation with the Pharisees who were like, we don't touch certain foods, we don't touch certain things. And Jesus was like, look, stuff that's outside of you is your least of your problems. <laughs> Number one problem you've got is what's inside of you because what comes out of you is junk. Wow. All right, uh, Romans, uh, no, no, uh, John three nineteen. Men love darkness uh, rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Love the darkness. Love the hiding. There's a sense of commitment to, uh, uh, to darkness. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Whoop, did you catch that? That was huge. The sinful heart does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is not... Able, hold that thought. Because everyone in this room is thinking to themselves, well, of course we believe in free will. And we love to go to Scripture and try to figure out whether the Bible teaches free will or not. Right? The Bible is not interested in free will. You know what the Bible is interested in? The ability of your will. We all want to know, am I free? Am I free? Am I free? Never once asking the question that the Bible asks, which is, are you able? Are you able? Are you able? And guess what the answer is? No, you're not able to please God or keep his law. 1 Corinthians 2.14, let's hear it again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Oops. The natural man doesn't accept these things, neither can he, because they're spiritually discerned. If you're spiritually dead, you can't discern them. All right, Ephesians 4.17-19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Darkened in their understanding due to the hardness of their heart. Hardness of heart, where that heart just won't soften. It won't repent. It won't look as if there's another direction to go in. Stubbornness. I mean, listen to the Bible's description of this. Okay, last one, Titus 1.15. It's yours, Cole. That's the one. You know, you asked for this responsibility, Cole. I, totally I just want to draw that out here, and now suddenly that you're there. Uh huh. Nobody knows what Titus is. It's in the New Testament. It's right after First Second Timothy, right before Philemon. As if that's going to help. <laughs> Does anybody have Titus one fifteen? What is the verse left? Titus one fifteen. <laughs> To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Ooh, their minds and their consciences are defiled. Uh, in the process. In other words, the Bible is describing a situation where there is something going on internally in your heart <clears throat> that is a big deal, and it is hindering us in terms of our ability. Do I believe in free will? This is where it gets a little weird. The answer is yes and no. 
In other words, yes, I believe in free will in the sense that you are free to do whatever you want to do. But the problem is the Bible says that all you want to do is to live for yourself. Even the helpful little Boy Scout who helps the little lady across the street, outside of his relationship to Christ, is only doing what he does for self-serving reasons. Does that make sense? Serving himself for those reasons. And therefore God looks and says, if it's not done in faith, it is sin. So man is free to do whatever he wants... But I do not believe in free will if by that you mean that man is free to do good. Man is free to do what he wants. He is not free to do what he ought. He is hindered by his ability, not by some freedom. I just want to know that man has free will. Well, what do you mean by that? Is is an apple tree free to produce oranges? Well, I mean, there's no moral necessity that's restraining that apple tree other than the fact that it's an apple tree. It's not in its nature to produce oranges. Therefore, we can say it can't. That apple tree's will, if you will, is bound. He's not free to produce oranges because he's not able to produce oranges. Do I believe in free will? Probably not, is what I'm saying. Or does for a lot of people that upsets them very differently. But no one wants to have the Bible's discussion. To me, the question of freedom is really very premature until you answer the question of, of ability. What can I do? Am I able to do these things in the face of what the Bible says? Now look, I want you to know that some of you are getting your world rocked right now and it's the best thing that ever happened to you because this is my one simple little phrase. If Man is unable to become a Christian by his choices. Then how, pray tell, will he ever become a Christian? The answer is, only if God does it. That's the first point of Calvinism. That's why we attempt to establish very strongly the first point of Calvinism. That if man is unable to do anything about a situation, then only God can be the one who's responsible for it. Now look. If you're following along, I appreciate the looks on some of your faces because that means that you are, you just registered a long list of philosophical questions, which I'm going to ask you to reserve for next week when all of your questions about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are going to be answered. (laughs) I'm kidding about that. But we will try to deal with some of these questions next week. Um, Let me just go back, and I'll finish with this one simple thought uh, um, uh, before we finish. This question has been going on for a long time, uh, even as far back as 400 A.D., let's go back to 418 A.D., there was another church council. We're just talking about 350-some-odd years after Jesus died, 300 years after the last apostle dies out. You have a very famous uh, um, uh, church uh, uh, council going on uh, in Carthage, um, And they were there to decide upon a controversy that had risen up between two very popular individuals. One guy is someone that I hope you've heard of. He was the Bishop of Hippo. That's kind of a drag. I tried to be the Bishop of Hippo. Um, uh, And his name was Aurelius Augustine. All right? Augustine, one of the early church fathers, was in a controversy with a monk by the name of Pelagius. Okay? Okay? And this controversy had taken issue over something, had arisen over a prayer that Pelagius had heard Augustine pray one time, which went sort of like this. 
Oh God, grant what you command and command what you desire. In other words, what Augustine was saying is, God, you've commanded me to do something. First of all, you've commanded me to believe in you. And so therefore, I'm praying that you would grant me the ability to even believe in you. Pelagius stood up and said, "Uh uh-uh, that's wrong. If God asks us to do something, then he must believe that we have the ability to do it, or else he wouldn't have asked. And Augustine said, no. God asks us to do what we cannot do to show us that we can't do it. Because he wants us to show that he wants us to see that salvation is by grace. Okay? This was the controversy at the Synod of Carthage back in 418 AD. In other words, there was this huge conversation that, that was introduced between them. And of course, the, uh, uh, the controversy sort of bled out where Augustine was shown to be the one in the right. But Pelagius' followers continued to stick around and continued to try to say that mankind is still able to make a good choice. Y'all, I'll simply finish with this one thought and we'll have a time uh, for questions at the end. If your salvation still rests to some degree upon the goodness of your choice, does that not set you on a very unstable foundation to know exactly whether you can be secure in life? In other words, one of the beautiful keys to going ahead and admitting about yourself that what you that what the Bible says about you is true is it suddenly can give you freedom. Freedom to stop trying. My favorite illustration about this, and I'll warn you, it's a bit of an embarrassing illustration, is one about that I'm going to tell on myself. Um, I remember very distinctly when I was uh, told about this young lady named Ginger Hubbard. Okay, Ginger Hubbard, that's my wife's maiden name. Had a lot of people tell me about this girl. She was from Ole Miss. She was in a very popular sorority while she was there. She was the M-Club sweetheart. She dated Jeff Carter, the first uh, guy who won the Chucky Mullins Award. Uh, <laughs> what else is there? She, um, uh, she run her up to homecoming queen her junior year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and here I am, <laughs> a campus minister <laughs> with a RUF. With little pipe cleaners coming out of his torso for arms, you know, not an athletic bone in his body. Um, I was deeply intimidated by Ginger. And of course, they all reminded me that Ginger was a jock. She was an incredible athlete. Like, she was, you know, a Mississippi high school, uh, all state uh, basketball player under Jan Sojourner from Jackson Academy. Uh, um, under her very first uh, basketball team, she jogs every day. She's an in- intramural athlete uh, of the year one year in college. I mean, just insane kind of stuff. So I literally, I'm thinking to myself, I'm 2,400 years old, and um, this is a cute girl. I'd love to ask her out, but I better get my sorry rear end in shape. So I'm literally so insecure at the ripe old age of whatever that I start to go and work out. Now, some of you know me much better than others. Those of you that know me well know that there's nothing funnier than the thought of me saying, it's time for me to go and start to work out, okay? I just don't do that. I'm what we would call indoorsy. Um, I like to watch television, okay? Um, I want to sit on the couch and eat Funyuns uh, with my time. But I literally decide I'm going to get up and start doing something. So I start 
to jog. Now, this is hilarious, all right, because I'm going to go out and go jogging so I can get in shape in case this girl looks and goes, hey, you want to go out and come run with me? Sure. And so I don't die of some kind of cardiac arrest. Maybe I ought to try to get myself together. So literally for about three awful weeks, I dragged my sorry rear end out of the bed, getting up at some ridiculous hour to go jog around my neighborhood to try to get some kind of, you know, um, I don't know what I was trying to do. It was, it was pathetic and embarrassing. I remember my moment of self-actualization. Ginger and I had had some, um, a few dates and everything. I found that she was really cute. Really hoped this thing would kind of go on and whatnot. But I woke up at like 6.30 one morning for my regular morning, you know, sort of uh, run. And um, I dragged myself out of that bed and walked into the bathroom, you know, to sort of brush my teeth or something, get ready for the day. And I stare into the mirror, and I have this huge moment. I say to myself in the mirror, self, self, you are not an athlete, and you never will be. And, what I, and it was a huge moment for me to kind of let that go, because I suddenly said to myself, if Ginger Hubbard decides that she does not want to go out with me because I'm not an athlete, that will be Okay. Because the alternative is to get up at 6.30 in the morning and have to go jogging around the neighborhood every morning. (laughs) And if that's a condition for her to have a relationship with me, I don't want to be with her. Right? That was funnier than that. That was was funny. (laughs) Meredith thought it was funny, but that's about the only people that got it. This was my huge moment of crossing over to this. Now, here's the funny thing. Um, Fast forward by about five years. Ginger and I have been married for two or three years by this time. And we're having that uh, conversation that you you can only have if you're married, which is like, what's the stuff about me that you, that you didn't get in me that you always thought you'd marry? <laughs> Does that make sense? Like, you, you, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a tense conversation. You want to have it after you're in a good mood. And we we're driving around. So what do you think you were going to marry? Um, but the funny thing is, is both of the things that we thought that we would want, we realize now were really very stupid things. Um, but Ginger was like, yeah, I really did think that she always said that she envisioned that, like, you know, sometime at the end of the day, she would, like, call up her husband, and we would, you know, meet at the gym together, and we would lift weights or jog together and all. It was like, that's great. Um, And um, I remember looking at her being like, I really, now knowing her and knowing kind of what a great athlete she is, I really want to be like, yeah, what was up with that? What were you thinking? And you know what she said? She said, you know, the funny thing was, she goes, I remember talking about that early on with you, that I remember you just thought it was so funny and just couldn't have cared less about whether I worked out or not. And you just, for you, it just wasn't an issue. Um, I mean, I remember numerous times her being like, you want to go out and exercise? I was like, nope, sure don't. (laughs) And we would laugh about it. And she said, when I saw that you kind of had let it go, it made it all that much more attractive. Hmm. I think there's a spiritual lesson in there somewhere. There's a sense in which God is saying, I want to have a relationship with you. But if you think that it's going to be somewhere, if you think that this relationship is going to be some kind of quid pro quo, kind of a this for that, like you do your good things in exchange for my favor, favor, it ain't going to work. But the second that you let that go, the second that you stop trying to jump through hoops for me, the second that you get off of that moral treadmill that your parents put you on, that your youth director put you on, 
that God forbid that preacher that you grew up with put you on, that your own conscience put you on, once you get off that treadmill, I promise you it's going to open doors to more joy than I have words to say to where you and I can really relate with some excitement with each other because it's going to be on the basis of something that you can't conjure up in your own self. That's what I want to see formed in you. That's what I long to see happen. Grasp that and total depravity, far from being an insult, can become one of the greatest blessings you could imagine.